0: Hey, this is John from pureandsimplebible.com. Thank you for coming back and listening to some great episodes across these few weeks about the final week in Jesus' life. Hopefully, you were able to begin with us last week. This is the middle episode in the series. We are continuing in a challenging day where Jesus is involved with people and their questions and some of the questions that he had for them as well. Let's jump right back into it, shall we? He kind of turns away from the the question and answer session. It's now time to let them know what's been wrong with them maybe for the past few generations that's or, right you know, they're getting the brunt of maybe their fathers and forefathers
1: yeah right? and what so goes on there so this day started back in the middle of if we just use matthew if we we start the middle of matthew 21 there's been lots of questions discussions but now it seems that jesus is done with the question portion of the day right and in matthew 23 he launches into what must be the most biting rebuke-filled sermon in the whole Bible. I can't Mm -hmm. think of one that is more critical than this, where Jesus eight times makes the statement, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And Jesus goes to expose what was at the heart of Pharisaic Judaism.
0: What's a hypocrite? You're about to make a big point on that, but let's pause
1: just to ask, what's a hypocrite? Well, the the word can be defined as a sort of a play actor. Okay. And uh, Jesus, in his explanation of hypocrisy, goes to show that the problem with the Pharisees was that they had all of the outward appearances of righteousness and religion. They uh-huh. had all of the show. They had all of the leaves. They're connecting it back to the fig tree. Yes, but none of the fruit. Uh-huh, okay. So uh, what Jesus shows is that the purpose of the law right. was not to create people who looked righteous, but to create people whose hearts had been transformed by the power of God. Right, right. We sometimes, I think, fail to see that purpose of the old law. We see the old law as a list of rules and regulations, a lot of ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cleanliness right. and all of these right. things, uh, clean and unclean. But really, the law was supposed to make people righteous mm-hmm. and holy and merciful. Perhaps one of the most profound statements in all of Matthew 23 is when Jesus comments on the fact That they knew how to tithe. Oh, they were expert tithers, (laughs) down to even tithing of their spices. Uh uh But they failed to take on the weightier matters, and weightier doesn't mean more important; it means more difficult. Right. So you you took all of the easy parts of the law, Uh and you lived just those, the outward things. But what about justice and mercy and righteousness? It's hard to live those. He says these. You should have done without neglecting yes. the others. Do both. Tithing yeah. is important; it's right. part of the law of God. Uh-huh. But don't you can't neglect these other things. Now, his final public sermon after he's done with yeah. these woes happens in the book of John. Yeah. So at the end of the woes, at the end of Matthew twenty-three, Jesus begins to weep. He breaks down. Right. And he makes that statement, "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem." How long I've desired to gather you to myself as a hen gathers of chicks, but you weren't willing. Your yep. house has left you desolate. Yep. And so he is he's foreshadowing something he'll talk more about in Matthew 24. But after all of that, in John 12, it says some Greeks come to see Jesus. This they, is a really long day. <laughs> yeah. And so they are interested in what Jesus is preaching. And John 12 is sort of a summary of the whole... <laughs> Uh, preaching career of Jesus, where Jesus himself and then John summarizes the message of Christ, and Jesus tells these Greeks, you know, I've I've got to die, and only after uh, this happens can can you be recipients of the blessings that I'm bringing. But yes, it's an incredible day, a long day, a lengthy time of preaching. And and, he's not even done yet. And he's not even done, because even though He's done with the Jews, and he's done in the temple. It's at this point that Jesus and the twelve leave, and when they're on their way out, you have that famous scene where Jesus spots the woman who's giving her two mites into the temple treasury. He pauses to teach the disciples about that, but then he and the twelve leave. The temple confines, and they climb up the Mount of Olives, as they had done many times before, Mm -hmm. and as they're going up, They have this grand view, this vista over the whole city of Jerusalem. So one of the disciples pauses and, you know, you can maybe envision maybe he tugs on uh, the the Lord's sleeve and they all turn around and he says, oh, look at that temple. What a what a view. What a masterpiece. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, you see that building right there? Uh, There's going to be a time when not one stone shall be left upon another, and this is Matthew 24. This Mm -hmm. is a great prophetic chapter, and so they ask Jesus a few questions at the beginning of Matthew 24. They ask him about that statement that he's just made. They ask him about his second coming and, and what signs will be associated with all this. So Matthew 24 starts with a prophetic sermon from Jesus about the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, and then it shifts partway through the chapter, to where Jesus begins to talk about the time when he will leave, mm-hmm. and eventually he'll return. Right, and when he returns, there's going to be an inspection. <laughs> we can use such uh, such verbiage, and so the end of Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25 uh-huh. is about this. Okay, in Matthew 25 we have three parables about judgment. You have the parable of the ten virgins, mm-hmm. where some will be wise and some will be foolish. You have the parable of the talents, right, where some will be hardworking and some will be lazy. And then you have the parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, I'm going to divide everybody into one of these two camps. Now, I don't think this is talking about believers and unbelievers. Jesus is done with the unbelievers. He finished with them in Matthew 23. Right. This is about Christians, and we know that for several reasons, of course, the context, but also the standard of judgment for the sheep and the goats is not uh, that the sheep were all baptized and right. the goats were not, right. or the sheep worship scripturally and the goats did not, is that the sheep saw their brethren in need and did something to help them, and the goats saw their brethren in need and neglected them. So you have these three parables in Matthew 25, which are all about Christians. Right. Some Christians are wise, some are foolish, mm-hmm. some are hardworking, some are lazy, mm-hmm. some are benevolent, and some ignore the needs of their brethren. In- this incredible sermon all about what Jesus will find when he returns. So you start partway, if we just use Matthew's gospel as the chronology, partway through Matthew 21 all the way to the end of Matthew 25. Wow. This is all the same day. And you can imagine Jesus now, after starting early in the morning, up on the Mount of Olives, uh-huh. maybe the sun is setting, they're looking at the temple, and Jesus takes this opportunity with the 12 to teach them about his return. Mm-hmm. And that what he finds among his own, among his servants when he returns is going to be what makes the difference in eternity. Now, this exhausting day, I mean... Yes. I, it's hard for me
0: to say I can relate to it because I can't. As a preacher, I have spent days where I've got up really early. I have had Bible studies and traveling, and I'm you know, out all morning and then come back late at night. I've had times like that. Yeah. That's really as close as I want to say I can get because... I imagine that Jesus is spent, yeah,
1: in ways that I might not understand. But yeah. uh, J- just a comment about that: it's I, I think that's an important point because uh, we have to remember the times when the Gospels remind us of the humanity of Jesus, mm-hmm. when he's sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm right. because he's exhausted from another day of preaching, mm-hmm. and here we have that as well because. Uh, Tuesday, this this ends the, the lengthy day of Tuesday, but on Wednesday, we see no activity from the Lord. That's where I was going to go next. It's a very short day. Yeah. You think seemed, that's related? He seems to take, I think he takes a day of rest. Honestly, I think that's what we find. Now, that doesn't mean nothing is happening on this day, but I think Jesus needs a day off. And he takes this as an opportunity to rest before things really start to ramp up. The final work begins. Yeah. Now, there is some activity on Wednesday. The chronology is a little bit difficult here, but it seems that uh, what we have is that uh, this is the day when, while the disciples and the Lord are resting in Bethany, Judas returns to Jerusalem. And this is the day when Judas goes to meet uh, with the leadership of the Jews mm-hmm. so that they can hatch their scheme uh, of delivering Jesus into their hands and. When you read uh, the beginning of um, uh, uh, Matthew 20, uh, 25, right. um, excuse me, Matthew 26, Matthew 25 we just discussed, Matthew 26, Okay, it says there that the uh, leaders of the Jews had decided they had to stop Jesus, mm. but their plan was to wait until after the Passover. Because during the Passover, there would have been thousands and thousands of Jews who'd come to the holy city for this feast from all over the world, Right. that means lots of eyes mm-hmm. are upon them. Mm-hmm. So they say, we're going to get Jesus. There's no doubt. We've got to do something, but we're going to wait until after the feast. They had made that decision when all of a sudden Judas walked through the door. Mm-hmm. And Judas makes this proposal. He says, you want Jesus, and I know you want him in secrecy. You don't want to cause a scene. I can do that for you. I can deliver Jesus to you in private in secrecy under the cover of darkness when no one will be around. Yeah. And they say he says uh he essentially says, "What will you give me for that?" And they say, "I we've got 30 pieces of silver for that." That was the that was the deal they struck.
0: The way that that echoes through history with Zechariah prophesying, not just that he would be betrayed, yeah, but with 30 pieces of silver. That's right. To me that's one of the most powerful evidences of the documents we have being Legitimate, yeah. That if we can identify these documents to have been written at the times that uh, they allege that they were written, and then to have it come true,
1: yeah, absolutely, it's, it's chilling. Yes, the fulfillment of prophecy is just one of the most, to 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 my mind, one of the most awe-inspiring and sometimes unbelievable. It's hard for me to believe, right, that God uh, worked with such precision throughout history, mm-hmm. because when you think about the thirty pieces of silver. Remember that 30 pieces of silver would not have been a stagnant, fixed price throughout history. 30 pieces of silver would have meant something different right. to Zechariah. Uh-huh. Or if you go way back to the book of Exodus, we have another allusion to the 30 pieces of silver in a peculiar law that Moses gives when, uh, when he says, if your oxen goes next door uh, to your neighbor's farm and injures one of his servants— And his servant has to take some time off to recover from his injury, Mm -hmm. you need to pay thirty pieces of silver. Oh wow. So that you might compensate your neighbor for the lost time of his servant. (laughs) Well, thirty pieces of silver in fourteen hundred BC could not have meant anything close to what it have meant what it would have meant in the Roman Empire during the days of Jesus. Right. Yet we find this consistency. Throughout the Scripture, Mm -hmm. Uh, these allusions and prophecies, and, you know, I don't believe that Judas had to have been the one. We know from prophecy that someone would have betrayed Jesus. I don't believe Judas had to have been the one, Uh, but he certainly fulfills all of those statements from the ancient prophets to the T.
0: Well, Judas is busy on Wednesday, and he's got more work to do on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. But now Jesus comes back into the picture and his disciples on Thursday. Help, help us understand,
1: as he begins this final work, what's going on on Thursday. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's just, of course, so much more than we could probably even hope to discuss in this time. But Thursday begins when Jesus commissions two of his disciples, Peter and John, to go find a place or make ready a place for them to observe the Passover meal together. The Passover was observed on the 14th day of the Jewish January, which is the month of Nisan. Okay. Uh, And uh, that would have been this Thursday. So it's sort of like the 4th of July in American holiday culture. It doesn't always happen on the first day of a week or the last day of a week. Right. It's a fixed date. Right. And so the Passover was a fixed date. It could happen any day during the week. On this particular year, it happened on a Thursday. Okay. So the law of Moses stipulated that when the sun goes down on this day uh, you're to gather in a household as we know from Exodus 12 and right. subsequent passages right. and observe the Passover feast with a group of people. So, a,
0: it's a special time. That's right. But the disciples are squabbling pretty quick
1: yes. right off the bat. So after Peter and John make make all the provisions and preparations and Jesus and the disciples gather in the upper room it seems that a fight breaks out almost immediately, uh, and I think probably the contention was who gets to sit next to Jesus during the feast. Sounds like children. Yes, yes. <laughs> who want to who want to be close to mommy and daddy, or who their best friend at the at the table? Right. They are fighting, and, and this was a a symbolic position of preeminence. Who gets to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus? Mm-hmm. So they are all going to recline at this table to eat together and they want to be they all want to be closest to Jesus and and you can just imagine the scene while they're bickering and arguing about why they should be the one <laughs> to sit next to Jesus maybe without even saying a word the lord goes over to the corner and he finds a bucket of water and a towel right and he ties it around his waist and he goes over to probably whoever was closest to him at that moment and he stoops down, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is only recorded in John 13. I bet it got quiet real quick. I guarantee it. I guarantee every eye in that room shot over to Jesus and thought, what is he doing? Mm -hmm. And Jesus goes through this whole process where he's washing the feet of the disciples, of course, to teach them this powerful lesson that they so often had missed during the last three years of his ministry about the importance of servitude Mm -hmm. and humility. At one Mm -hmm. point, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no, 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 no. You're not going to wash my feet. I I think in one sense, this was noble of Peter, because he recognized who Jesus was. He had made that confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus says, no, it has to be done. If it's not done, uh, then you can't have any part with me. And another incredible thing that happens during all this is to think about the fact that jesus would have washed the feet of judas wow and he makes a statement while he's washing peter's feet that one of you is not clean Mm. an allusion certainly to what judas had just done the day before so he jesus knows right yet still he washes the feet of judas so finally jesus settles this whole matter of who gets to sit next to him they all sit down and they begin the process of eating the roast lamb The unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, which was the three essential elements of the Passover feast. And as they're eating, you know, different conversations maybe are happening around the table. Mm -hmm. Jesus makes this bombshell announcement. Right. When he says, One of you will betray me. I got I bet it got quiet again real quick. (laughs) Well, it did for a moment as people were listening to his words, but then people started asking, uh-huh. Lord, is am I, I the one? Is it I? <laughs> and what's so fascinating about this is that the response from the 12 was not, oh yeah, it's Judas. <laughs> We've known this guy's been shady for years. He's been
0: wearing black clothes. <laughs> yes, yes. It's
1: got to be this guy. Look at look at that face. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the face of a traitor. No, none of that. Right. Not only did they not suspect Judas, they thought it might be themselves. They, each individual disciple thought, is, right. am I the one? Right. And Judas in the, uh, Jesus rather, in the clamor of all of this, as you can imagine all of them shouting, is it me, is it me? They're they're worried. Jesus makes the statement that evidently only John hears because only John records it. Okay. He says, it's going to be the one who dips with me in the dish. And John records how Jesus takes the piece of bread. He dips it in the mixture of unleavened bread and he hands it to the old King James says he hands the sop. He hands that bread to Judas and Judas says is it, it, am I the one is it me and Jesus says you know go whatever you're going to do go and do it quickly mm. and again nobody notices that because right. when Judas gets up to leave they think oh Judas is making a grocery run right or Judas is going to make a charitable donation in honor of the festival. That's amazing. They have no idea mm-hmm. that it's Judah. So mm-hmm. he leaves. And it is in at this point in the feast, that Jesus does something that was not typical of the Passover meal. He takes a a piece of unleavened bread that had not been touched during the dinner. Right. And he makes this incredible statement when he says, this is my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he implores them to all partake of this loaf in commemoration of his death. So they pass around the loaf, and each of them eats from it. And and then he takes a cup of grape juice, fruit of the vine, and he makes another incredible statement. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Mm. And he blesses it, and he drinks and passes that cup around, and they all drink from it. Now, this was not part of the Passover, and and they immediately would have recognized this is something different. Right. This is something new. And at the end of all of this, the Bible says that they sing a hymn together. Mm. They probably sang one of the Passover psalms, a collection of psalms that were typical to sing during this time of year, most of which were highly messianic. Right. And at the conclusion of their time together, uh, the Bible says that they, they leave and they go to the Mount of Olives. Now, you have to put a few pieces together to make the chronology work here. So Judas left, and he went to find his co-conspirators. Right. They didn't have Twitter back then, so it would have taken them a little time to gather their posse. Okay. So they've got to call some people together—the chief priests and the elders. They they go to Pilate to secure some troops, right? Which means Pilate is in on all this already. He he kind of knows a little bit of what's going on, and they send their uh, entourage, their their large, massive people to the house with Judas at the lead. But by the time this is now, this is a little speculation on my my part. By the time they get to the house and knock through the door and go upstairs. Jesus and the eleven are gone right so Judas says don't panic I know where they might have gone Mm -hmm. and and it's at this point that Judas leads them out so Jesus has a little bit of a head start and this is a a part of John's gospel that's very important okay this is John uh, 13 14 15 and 16 and 17 five chapters yes where Jesus and the the eleven are making their way to Gethsemane okay and as they're on the way. Jesus is teaching them about the fact that he's going to leave, but they shouldn't let that trouble them. So you have the famous statement in John 14, let Mm -hmm. not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, so on and so forth. Jesus has told them he has to go. He has to go to fulfill his mission. Uh He has to go to prepare a place for them. Right. But he's going to leave them with something to help them along the way. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, right? the Comforter, mm-hmm. the Spirit of truth, who's going to guide them into all truth. You can imagine, by the way, as they're walking that walk from Jerusalem to Gethsemane, mm-hmm. that maybe they pass a little vineyard, and he gives that parable in John 15, I oh. am the vine, you are the branches. Right, right. As long as you are connected to me, there's no need to worry, mm-hmm. there's no need to fear, I am with you. And so he teaches them all of this, and then
0: he prays. You know, when when I have to sit through a sermon, uh, maybe after I've already sat through several sermons, maybe at a gospel meeting or something where there's several presentations, maybe especially after a meal, like a Sunday afternoon mm, service, mm-hmm. right?
1: The most perilous of all services.
0: <laughs> it, well, it always begins with the same phrase. Well, we all know it's Sunday afternoon. <laughs> That's right. Our
1: bellies are full. Yes.
0: But I... I'm starting to understand maybe a, a little bit more of a personal level why those disciples were falling asleep. And Jesus is oh, saying, yes. hey, wake up, The be ready, be on your guard, et cetera. But they have a full belly. Yes. And they have, I, I don't want to say the word endured, it's such a negative word, but they have been through yes. five chapters worth of, of sermons.
1: <laughs> a lot of sermonizing. A lot of, yeah, yeah, sermonizing. At and, least they got to stretch their legs and walk a little bit true, during the process. True. But you're absolutely right. Because remember... They didn't even start eating the Passover till after the sun went down, so all of this started five or six o'clock in the evening. Uh-huh. By the time they get to Gethsemane, it's probably
0: about midnight. Okay, so that means, you know, the, the transitions from days typically end with a rest period, but we're starting Friday off
1: right at midnight. That's right, absolutely, yeah. So Jesus, after he gives this sermon, he prays. This is John seventeen, this high priestly prayer, right. He implores God to protect them and to enable them in their mission. They're going to go out and they're going to tell people about me. Mm -hmm. May they be able to bring unity to the whole world Mm -hmm. just as I and the Father are one, that they may be one in uh, in the message that they're bringing to the whole world. Then John 18 says they cross the brook Kidron Uh and they enter the garden. And now it's time for another prayer. And this is when Jesus takes a few disciples to a little isolated place, right. Peter, James, and John, mm-hmm. and he he starts this fervent and vehement prayer. And as you as you just mentioned, the disciples are exhausted. Right. I mean, it's understandable that they are, and they start to doze off. And so Jesus has this time when the gospel writers tell us he is filled with anguish. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we need to be a little careful with this. I think that Jesus is not uh, a reluctant martyr, and neither do I think Jesus is concerned with the physical pain he's about to endure. Hmm. I think that Jesus is in anguish because he knows that when he goes to the cross and when he takes on himself the sin of the world that there will be a time when Jesus is going to experience something he has never experienced from eternity past, a time when he will be separated from the Father, when he'll cry out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, Eli, Eli, Lama, Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's right. going to be this time when Jesus will endure something he's never experienced. Jesus experienced pain. Right. He has experienced suffering. In his 33-year life, he's experienced toil and hardship and anguish. But Jesus, from the time uh, before there was time, never experienced what he would encounter on the cross. Mm. And I think as Jesus is is pondering what that might mean, he begins to sweat. The Bible says, "Great drops of blood right. pouring forth." Mm-hmm. And he is in toil he is in anguish like he has never experienced emotional, physical spiritual anguish mm. And so he prays in addition to the angels
0: that come to minister him yes. at this time that Luke talks about yes um you know his his prayer does change slightly between the first and the second you know uh, he does pray, may this cup be taken away from me, but right. nevertheless not my will but thine be done. When he goes to the disciples and comes back, he doesn't pray that. It's almost right. like his mission is galvanized at yeah. that point. And he simply says uh, that may your will be done.
1: While this is going on, some flickering lights are getting closer. Yes, yeah. So uh, Jesus, as he concludes his, uh, his tri-part prayer, his is, thrice-repeated thrice repeated prayer, mm-hmm. and he's comforted by the angel. He rouses his slumbering disciples, and he tells them, the time has come. He says, my betrayer is at hand. Mm. And so Judas now approaches with his mob, uh, maybe numbering in the thousands, some scholars estimate, wow. because of the large entourage of troops uh, that would have been accompanying Judas. Right. So uh, Judas leads this mob, and Jesus goes to approach And I wish we could spend the rest of our time just talking about this, because this confrontation, Uh to me, is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible. Right. So Jesus starts things off. You know, if you just read um, some of the Gospels, it seems like Judas is the one who steps forward to initiate. But Jesus starts this off when he asks the question, whom are you seeking? And they say, you can imagine several people in the crowd shouting, Jesus of Nazareth, we're here for Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And Jesus responds, now in our Bibles, it says, I am He, and the word He is italicized, but really right. it's just the statement, I, I am. am, which is of course a profoundly uh-huh. important biblical uh-huh. statement, right. going all the way back to when God revealed Himself to Moses uh-huh. at the burning bush. Right. Right. So Jesus responds, I am. And at those words, the Bible says, the crowd drew back and fell to the ground. Right. Jesus is showing everyone gathered in mm. this garden, mm-hmm. you have no power here. Right. I have all the power, but yet I'm going to go. Right. I'm going to go. I'm going to let you do your, uh, your evil deed. In fact, it says, and I think it's in Luke's gospel, That this is, Jesus says, this is your time. This is the time of the power of darkness. Yeah, when darkness reigns. Yes.
0: Now, there's some other very significant events oh, that happen. So many, in this moment. Yeah. It's a,
1: it's almost a tragedy to
0: go past It is. It, it is.
1: But we I know we but, must press forward, yes. <laughs> in, so
0: in the in cinematic versions of what happens next, yeah, so, he just goes to trial. That's right. But in so, in the Bible there's actually six trials. Six
1: different trials. So, so Jesus allows the mob to arrest him, the disciples flee, they forsake him and flee, Matthew's gospel says.
0: Well, we're going to pause right there, and I invite you to come back next week as we wrap up this very very inspiring conversation about the final week of Jesus' life. Thank you, Shahe, for joining me so far, and I look forward to wrapping it up with you again next week. Until then, consider going to the website, www.pureandsimplebible.com, and check out the resources that are there for you to use. High-quality Christian resources, downloadable for free. I'd love for them to be helpful to you in your personal ministries, however you can use them. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.